Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, on the show today, why the time of day you choose to do stuff, from meditation to exercise to key work activities, matters much more than you might think. That's coming up from our guest, Daniel Pink. But uh, we're going to start here uh, with your voicemails. And before the voicemails, my usual caveat, which is uh, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not a meditation teacher, just a reporter who happens to meditate. Uh, I have not heard these questions before they're played to me, so I just do my best to answer mostly from personal experience. So here we go. Here's question number one. Hi there. Uh, My question is, what do you do when... You are a parent, and in my case, I'm home alone a lot with my kids because my husband travels, and there are just nights where there's so little sleep, and you know, when I use the app, I definitely feel better, but I have to prioritize sleep sometimes, and it's really hard to pick and choose, um, and so I'm kind of curious as to how you do that in that phase of life when the kids are really little. You know, also, I think that a show dedicated to single parents would be something amazing because I think as a community we could all do a lot more to support that group and and I think that meditation would be amazing but also just setting up that habit for them would be really challenging and would be interesting to hear an expert or someone's thoughtful take on it. Anyway, thanks a lot for your work and uh, have a great day. Bye. Great points. Great question. Great suggestion. Um, I feel your pain to a certain extent. I'm I'm not a single parent, clearly, but I do have a three year old around the house and I know what it's like to be woken up in the middle of the night or woken up before you want to be woken up in the morning. And it's really hard. So I think the thing to know is that this isn't going to last forever for better or worse. I think we will actually miss a lot of this stuff, uh, ironically, when it's over, but it's not going to last forever. Our kids are not going to be young forever and you need to stay sane and sleep is incredibly important. And I would not skimp on it. Um, and so just my own, if it was up to me for or w- what I do in my own personal life is I, I optimize for sleep. You just can't function without it. This study, you should go back and listen to the episode we did with um, Ariana Huffington, who just talks about how, you know, it's like drinking and driving, you know, when you when you haven't slept. It's it really is debilitating. So I would uh, and I know it sounds to me that you're, uh, you know, you're committed to to meditation as well, and I know that can be tough to try to fit it all in when you've got so many demands, work, your kids. So what I would say is definitely, you know, sneak that nap in so that you can, because if you don't, you're going to be, it's going to be tough for you to be the way you want to be, I think, with your kids. Um, and then maybe shoot for really short meditations. If you're using the 10% Happier app, you know we've got a lot of one-minute meditations on there, two, three, four-minute meditations. D- do that and just know that, you know, right right now may not be the time in your life when you're going to be able to do as much meditation as you want. But one thing we see very clearly in meditation is that everything changes and you will get to a point where you can give it the attention you deserve. Right now, the people who deserve your attention the most are your critters. So, I would, if it were up to me, that's that's what I would, that's what I would advise. Hope that helps just a little bit. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, just bottom line, definitely do sleep as much as you can, and and stay with the meditation. Just go with the short ones. Um, all right. Here's uh, here's the second call. 
Hi, Dan. This is Elliot from Virginia. Uh, thank you for everything that you do. Um, reading your books and listening to your podcasts have truly been life-changing for me, uh, so thank you. Uh, my question revolves around one of your favorite subjects, time. Um, I've been doing 10 minutes a day for some time now, and I want to go up to 15 minutes, an arbitrary number of 15 minutes, but I'm kind of worried that if I jump up to that, it'll become harder for me to stick with. So my question is, how do you advise folks to, if they want to, how do you advise them to increase the amount of time they're meditating, whether to do it gradually um, or some other way? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I love this subject. And, um, you know, I had to learn a lot of, in, in writing my last book, I had to learn a lot about um, what it takes to change a habit, to, to change your behavior. Um, and it is really hard. And the thing to know is, uh, as I said in the book, we're, we're wired to fail. Um, that evolution did not leave us with a mind that is really good at, uh, you know, evolution didn't care about brushing your teeth. It just cared about getting your DNA into the next generation. So um, we, we're, just not, we're just not equipped to do this stuff seamlessly and easily. So I think it's great if you want to um, boost the amount of time, 10 minutes to 15 minutes, sounds like a, a nice uh, manageable leap. I would say that, from what I can tell in my own personal experience and from what I've done, from what I've read uh, and, and talking to experts, that the, the given that we are wired to fail, the best attitude with which to approach the formation of a new habit or, in your case, the expansion of an existing one is with a spirit of experimentation. Just give it a shot. Uh, see if it works and be willing to fail and know that if you fail, it's not truly a failure. Um, uh, it's just, um, as Thomas Edison is reputed to have said, um, I've never failed. I just tried 10,000 things that, that didn't work. Um, and you just got to try, you know, maybe that 15 minutes will work better in the afternoon, or maybe the first time you try it, uh, you know, it doesn't stick, but the second time it does, um, maybe it works better in the morning. Uh, maybe there's a teacher on the app that you, that you really like, um, whose meditations actually get you there more seamlessly. Maybe 15 minutes becomes something you do three times a week instead of seven days a week. So it's, uh, I think there's a lot there to play with. I think going into it and without making the thing all overheated and um, and uh, supercharged and freighted uh, will, in, in my view, I, I think it will boost your chances of success. So give that a shot and then... Leave me a voicemail and let me know how it goes. Uh, if you, listener, want to uh, leave, leave me a voicemail, here's the number, 646-883-8326. 646-883-8326. I suspect my brilliant producers chose that second voicemail because it leads perfectly into our guest today, who's going to be talking about timing, uh, how you manage your time, when is the best time to do things, um, uh, his name is Daniel Pink. He's written a bunch of huge best-selling books, uh, but his newest successful book is called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. So let me just say, before we get into this, that this, D Daniel represents a bit of a pivot that we're actually trying to do on this podcast, and I'd love your feedback on this on Twitter or anywhere else you want to give me feedback. Um, we're going to pivot slightly in the podcast to some guests 
who aren't meditation focused. We've done a little bit of in the past. I think we're going to do more of it now. And Daniel uh, is an example of that. He, we do talk about meditation to a, cert, a certain extent, but that's not really his main interest or the main thing that we end up discussing. Really, I think we're kind of we're we're gonna, we're going to still do a ton of meditation stuff on this podcast forever. It's because it's such a huge interest for me. Most of the voicemails will be about meditation. Most of the guests will be talking about it. But we are going to start having more guests on here who talk about just happiness and well-being more broadly. And I think we're moving toward an era where this show will be about helping you get your uh I want to say a word that starts with S, but I'm not allowed to. Helping you get your stuff together on every level. Um, with a huge focus on on meditation. So uh, Daniel's a perfect example of this because he's written a, a ton of stuff about uh, about work, about management, about behavioral science. He's a fascinating guy. As I said, he's got many, many best-selling books. Um, he had a book called Drive, a book called To Sell as Human, uh, a book called Free Agent Nation. And in his interview, while we do talk about meditation, we actually go through each of these books and you get some bullet points that are super useful from all of this research he's done on all the books he's written. So I'll shut up now. And here he is, Daniel Pink. You mentioned to me, and I cut you off and said, save it until we get on the podcast, that you've tried to do a little bit of meditation to tell me how that came about and what the results were yeah so in the past i've tried meditation and it was always very very difficult for me because my mind started wandering um i got impatient um once or twice i would kind of doze off and so i gave it up uh but i actually dan picked up uh your your book because i am the quintessential fidgety skeptic i'm actually less skeptical about meditation because i know that some of the some of the research on it but i am the most fidgety person that, around. I'm fi- I mean, you've already seen me here when I come into the studio. <laughs> I've already shifted my position a couple of times. I've taken off my jacket. I've taken off my I've taken off my glasses. I'm a fidgety guy, and so um, so I'm trying to get better at it. I, and I think there's a I think there's a big I think there's a huge huge advantage in it, and it actually connects to some of the research I've done on timing as well. When you described what you called. Uh well, you didn't use the word, but you were, you, the the implied word was failed meditation. Yeah, uh, that sounded to me like successful meditation. Okay, sitting down, seeing that you're totally distracted, and even that, and occasionally falling asleep, and feeling like a failure. That sounds like successful meditation with one missing ingredient, which is the knowledge that that is successful meditation. In yep. other words, if you know going in. I'm going to get distracted a million times. Right. I may fall asleep, but that actually is meditation. Then you're really killing it. That well, I mean that, and that actually was helpful in in your book um, about fidgety skeptics and that saying uh, saying that oh okay this is this is okay like the fact that I only I don't I don't know the right term the fact that I only hold the meditative stance for four seconds that's is, that would be really long that, that would be a that's 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 a victory half of one second would be a victory i'll take it so wow i feel so much better about myself now you should you should yeah. before we dive into your new book and yeah. actually i want to talk about your new book and and your previous books yeah. tell me a little bit about yourself and your personal history and why meditation would be interesting to you at all yeah um it's it's interesting i mean i i, I might come at it in a somewhat different angle than, than than some people i actually come at it from 
became intrigued by it from the research angle, looking at what some of the science has told us about meditation and, and, and its benefits. And it seems to me, looking at the research, it's overwhelmingly positive mm-hmm. that it's one of those things, somewhat akin to physical exercise, that is all good. And so that had me thinking, well, why am I not doing this? And, and you know, as like any other human being, I'm feeling at moments in my life certain levels of stress, certain levels of confusion. And so here's this thing that's scientifically validated and could be an antidote to stress and confusion. I'd be crazy not to try it. Um, however, I mean, I, I think that I fell into the rabbit hole that, that, you, that you, you suggest in thinking that there's a certain way it has to be done and that success is measured by going into some kind of permatrance for an extended period of time. and Good luck with that. Right. And, and so taking these little you know, nibbles at the apple, I yes. think, is, yeah. is actually a positive. What's interesting to me is you spend your life looking at science right. around the mind and how we behave. Right. So to you, as you said before, you were fidgety but not a skeptic. Right. Because yes. this, is, this is your world. So tell us a little bit about how you got into doing what you're doing. Because I know you went to law school and yeah. you, you famously and hilariously said in one of your TED Talks that you were the guy in law school that made the top 90% possible. Indeed, I was. I was. So I, I haven't gotten any thank yous from my law school classmates for that one yet. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so it's, a, you know, like 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 most of us, um, I got to what I'm doing in, in a meandering, somewhat half-assed way. So I grew up in, in central Ohio, classic Midwestern background. I went to college. I went to law Northwestern, school. Northwestern, right? Yes, indeed. I went to college. I went to law school because Yale. whatever, whatever. That's you went what, to, you that. got to a really good law school because Yale obviously is one of the best. Yeah, I was a pretty good student, you know, but I, it's, that, that doesn't really mean it. That doesn't really mean anything. So, so I went to law school, realized, okay, I'm not going to practice law, but I was really interested in politics. So I worked in politics for a while. I was a political speechwriter. For Al Gore, for, right? Indeed. I was a, Al Gore's chief <clears throat> speechwriter for a while. I was really interested in politics. And then when I got into the belly of the beast, I said, whoa, this is not how I want to spend the rest of my life. Why? Well, um, part of it was I found it to be an, you know, I, I went in with some degree of idealism, but not a kind of blind idealism. And I was amazed at how deeply cynical Mm. the world was. And I found that if I was to continue to be in a world that cynical, that inevitably would seep into my pores, it would seep into my bones, and I would end up being this incredibly cynical, narrow-minded, purely tactical kind of person. The other thing, though, was that throughout my life, or at least my you know, post-18 life, I was always, quote-unquote, writing on the side. So even when I was in college, when I was in law school, especially when I was in law school, I was writing magazine articles on the side. I was writing op-eds on the side. And Probably why your grades sucked. <laughs> yeah, but the articles weren't bad. Yes, no, no, uh, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, so... You were, the signals were but, there. <laughs> but I was... Well, there you go. That's exactly the point, which is exactly the point. So even when I was working in politics, I was quote-unquote writing on the side. So finally, I'm in my early 30s, and my wife says to me, hey, this thing you're doing on the side might be what it is that you actually do. And so I quit my job. My wife kept her job, kept our health insurance. And, and what's her job? She was she was a, a lawyer for the Justice Department. Okay, so she, she succeeded. Yes. Oh, yeah, she's a very skilled <laughs> lawyer until I convinced her to leave law. Um, so I'm going to put a pin in that because I want to hear that story later. Yeah. So, 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 um, so I, so I decide, okay, what I'm going to do, maybe I'm actually constituted to be a writer. Again, this is a discovery I made 
in my early 30s. So I go out and I try to be a writer and basically saying, what am I really deeply interested in? Now, let me take a quick reverse back to my earlier life. I was actually a linguistics major in college. I did actually some original research as an undergraduate in linguistics. But of course, it's like, okay, I'm not going to go get a PhD in social sciences because I'm a kid from the Midwest and that's not going to be any kind of economic security. But at some level, maybe that's what I should have done. And so this combination of forces, hey, you're really interested in social science. Hey, you want to be a writer? Suddenly, three decades into my life, I say, wait a second, maybe this is what I should be doing. And so forgive that incredibly tortured, long-winded no, answer. No, you're in a, yeah. you're in a safe place for a tortured, <laughs> long-winded answer. This is, we, we traffic in that. Okay. <laughs> so more, please. So, you, so when you say you got an interest in social sciences and that's where the, the kind of uh, books you started to write and articles yeah. you started to write, say more. Like what were the topics specifically that you got into? Well, I mean I was, I was actually really interested in um, – in work and in economics, especially. So the first book I wrote was a book called Free Agent Nation, which is about people leaving large organizations to go to work for themselves. As I started writing that book, I thought it was really a book about economics. It was about here are the inexorable forces of information age capitalism that are scattering people out of firms out on their own. And when I actually went and reported it, which is always a valuable thing to do, (laughs) um, and for that book, I, I traveled around the country interviewing people who had left large organizations to go work for themselves, I discovered that, yeah, it was partly an economic story and partly a a technology story, but it was mostly a psychology story. Mm. It was mostly people saying, I wanted to live a different kind of life. Uh, I wanted a sense of autonomy. Um, I wanted some degree of of meaning. I, I didn't want to squander my time here. And that surprised me that it was about these other kinds of, of motives. And, um, and, it, and I guess at some level, there's a, I, I think that there, there is a, uh, an overlap, a synergy between what our desires are as human beings and what we do on the job. And at some level, work, which might be a through line in some of the books that I've written, we spend you know, over half of our waking hours at work. And so it becomes this place where you can understand what makes people tick, what's driving them. How do they perform? What do they care about? How do they interact with others? What are their stresses? What are their struggles? And so, so seeing human behavior take place, not in a laboratory setting, but in this really yeasty uh, setting of the workplace is, is fascinating. You get insights into who we are. But when did you write Free Agent Nation? 2001. Okay. Do you think it is still true? Yeah. And accelerating? Slowly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, remember, I wrote Free Agent Nation. I I had this elaborate argument for why this was going to continue. Um, And that was, and and some of it was technology. But remember, 2001 is before smartphones, it's before social media, Uh, it's before Uber and the gig economy. Right. It's Web 1.0. It's before widespread broadband. Yeah. You know, and and so, and so I think that a lot of the forces that are pushing us in that direction have only deepened and accelerated. Is it a good thing? It's a thing. I mean, I think it's more I think it's I think the glass is, is half full rather than half empty, but it's not a uniformly good thing. Um, you know, and, and it's one of those things where I think that our policies haven't reckoned with these changes. The biggest shift in in work is not so much, ooh, do you get a W two or ten ninety nine? That's a bogus distinction. That's the distinction that a lot of people have made. Oh, are you an independent contractor or an employee? 
That's nonsense. I've been working for myself for 20 years. I get a W-2 because I'm an employee of Daniel Pink Incorporated. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. like that whole way of organizing things doesn't make any sense. I think what's gone on in the world of work, and it's something that our policies haven't reckoned with, is that there's been a massive shift of risk from organizations to the individual. That's the big thing. And that's true whether you are an independent contractor, whether you're a freelancer, whether you're self-employed, whether you're a small entrepreneur, or whether you're working in inside of a company. Well, why is that? I work for Disney, a massive corporation. Why is the risk shifted to me? How is the risk shifted to me? On a couple of different, on a couple of different dimensions. Number one, you have, you have some people who are reckoning, who are basically making a very rational decision. They're saying, if I put all of my human capital in one organization, in one company, I'm not diversified. So if I get, if I get canned, which I could easily be, I could easily get canned, I'm done. But if I have multiple clients and customers, if one goes away, that's not good, but it's not the end of the world. I'm diversified. Now, of course, no one would ever get rid of the great Dan Harris. <laughs> but... but but all of us have that kind of risk. But the other thing that's happened, and, and here I can actually assure that I will, that everyone will turn off this podcast. Let's talk about pension policy here for a moment, <laughs> all right? Because the other thing – but this is actually telling. Well, the other thing that's happened over the last 20 or, 20 or 30 years is that – and it's a great example of the shift of risk – is that, for instance, my father. My father had what was called a defined benefit pension. That is, when he left his job at, after many years – he would get a check every um, month. My mother still gets a check from that defined benefit pension. All right, you and I have four hundred one ks. That is, we don't have we don't we have to actually take our own money and invest our own money in a four hundred one k in order to have any kind of retirement savings. The burden of saving for retirement has shifted from the company to us. You see the same thing with health care. It used to be that companies were paying almost the lion's share of health insurance premiums. Now employees are paying much more of the health insurance premiums. Other companies are moving to things like um, health savings accounts or just giving you a lump sum of money to do with what you want. Same thing is true in education and training. A lot of large firms have giant education and training um, um, uh, outfits inside of the firm. Now they say, I don't know, you know, if you're only going to be here for two or three years, why should I devote a huge amount in education and training? Instead, maybe I'll give you a $500 stipend so you can buy some books or take a course. And so all over and over again, the risk has shifted from the organization to the individual. Now, that's, that's, I think that's morally neutral, but you have to have policies that ensure that people don't get screwed because of that. You said it was you, what you learned in the process of reporting the book was it, it was not just an economic story, not right. just a technological story, but also a psychology story. Right. What, what do you mean? Can you add add some yeah. meat to that? Yeah. So, so here's okay. Here we go. So here's what here's what happened. And again, this is the this is the advantage of I, I think in terms of understanding things of of actually reaching something resembling the truth of doing of drawing on both the hard science of research and some amount of journalism and reporting and and storytelling. So I I had people tell t- say things like this. You know what Dan another reason I didn't another reason I left this big company is I felt I wasn't making a contribution. Okay, just think about that phrase right there. It was commonplace. What does that mean when they say I wasn't making a contribution? At some level, it is, I mean, again, I don't want to glorify this or over-intellectualize it, but at some level, it is existential. People want to know what what happened is people would come into large companies and they would do stuff and it seemed like it didn't matter. 
like nothing would happen. They would write a memo, go to a meeting, and like the world didn't change at all. And and then then you start wondering, what if I didn't show up? <laughs> would anybody care one way or another? And but so, you said you didn't want to glorify it, but I, let me do that because okay. I mean, there's a human need for meaning. Hmm. It's why the churches are filled on Sunday mornings. Absolutely, and this has come. And, and, and basically, every it's interesting you say that because essentially every book that I've written. Not intentionally, but just following what the, the what I thought what the what the truth was or what I thought were the interesting questions leads back to this thing about meaning. And meaning the pursuit of meaning was a big big part of why some people, not everybody, were leaving large organizations to go to work for themselves. There was also, I think, the human drive for some degree of autonomy, not being controlled. Uh, there was also a drive for some degree of authenticity. I had a lot of people in that book written, again, long ago, talking about, well, I come into the office and I would put on a mask. I would come into the office and put on my game face. I mean, literally talking the language of concealment and camouflage and disguise and as a way of suppressing their own authenticity. So I didn't expect to be having those kind of conversations. I expected it to be this conversation about what are the you know what are the mechanisms that at work in the information age economy? But it ended up coming back to some of these fundamental human drives. And in many ways, that first book experience for you, it seems to me, it lifts the curtain on the rest of your career, which is not only from a uh, from a technically the book was yeah. a success and therefore you had other books. More of that in terms of that you went on to really get beneath the surface of our psychology as it applies to our work. I think so. I think that's I think that's I think that's part of it. I mean, what I was what I was I, I guess I was not shying away from that uh, in a way that I would have initially. Initially, I didn't set out to, to write about these kinds of those kinds of things. I, I, I set out to write about things that were nominally more hard headed. Again, we think about we think about the field of economics as more hard headed than, say, the field of psychology or human motivation. But they're both hard headed and they're both important and they're both entangled up in each other. So we're at a juncture where I need to ask your permission for something. My goal was to actually talk about your new book, but now we're kind of on a chronological trajectory. So can we build to your new book? Would that be okay? Uh, whatever it takes. Okay. So what was the next book? The next book was a book called A Whole New Mind. What was and that about? That was about the rise of right brain. Right brain. Uh, the subtitle is "Why Right Brainers Will Rule the Future." Right brain is creative. Left is is technical math. Uh, is yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Well, I mean, I'm using it as a metaphor. Basically, our left our left hemisphere. There's a lot, so much garbage written about left brain and right brain. I was leery about wading into this, wading into these waters. But the left hemisphere of our brain is. We use both sides of our brain for everything that we do, but they have they process things differently. Right, so the left hemisphere processes things logical, linear, sequential, analytical. Right hemisphere is more uh, processes things in a more contextual way. So it deals with context rather than text. It deals with synthesis rather than analysis. It processes things simultaneously rather than step by step. And my argument, such as it was, is that that division of labor in the brain offers a powerful metaphor for understanding what's going on in the economy. And the idea was, and this book is 2005, six, um, is that certain kinds of abilities characteristic of the left brain, logical, linear, SAT spreadsheet kinds of abilities, those were becoming easy to outsource and automate. 
And therefore, what's harder to outsource and automate are these abilities more characteristic of the right hemisphere, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking, that those kinds of abilities were becoming more important. What if you don't have a lot of right brain capacity and you want to be success in this economy? Well, I, I think that most people do have, a, have more right brain capacity than they, than they realize. It's, to me, it's analogous to literacy and numeracy. So we would never take a kid in, in almost all circumstances and say, okay, that kid just can't learn to read. That kid just can't learn to do math. Um, I think that all of us can be at least literate in these kinds of right brain capacities. And I think that what, what happens is that people begin to discover that they're actually better at some of these things than they realize. It's just that a lot of these abilities have been dormant. And they might be happier, actually, if they were you know, really following that part of their they, they, right. They, 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 they might be because a lot of the ability, a lot of these left brain abilities are fairly routine abilities. I mean, if software can do, you know, if, if, you know, a good example of, of the, I started writing about the, the shift of jobs to India pretty early in the game. And so, oh my God, these Indian, these Indian programmers are taking, taking, I have air quotes here, taking American jobs. This is a calamity. This is unfair. And what what basically is happening is that any kind of work that is routine, that is you can reduce to a script, to a spec sheet, to a formula, to a series of steps, that kind of work races to the cheapest cost provider. And so that's what happened with with manufacturing work. Well, that's where I was. That's where my mind was going. Absolutely. It leads me to the whole basic income uh, discussion. Well, I mean, I think that's. I'm, I think it's actually pretty amazing that this country is even having that universal basic income conversation right now. So I should just define what that means, but I'll, yeah. I'll try, and then you'll yeah. correct me because inevitably I will uh, run afoul yeah. of, of, of facts. I mean, but, I don't know very much about universal basic income. That doesn't mean that I'm not happy to opine on it. But <laughs> you're my kind of guy. So essentially, the argument is as as these jobs get more automated, either by AI, artificial intelligence, or robots, or being, or they're outsourced to other countries, yeah. the simpler jobs, uh, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but uh, jobs that can be automated, let's right. just say, are going away. And that means that uh, there may be large swaths of the population as we head into the future that are unemployed and unemployable. Right. And so the idea is we need to provide a universal basic income, which would solve maybe an economic problem, but certainly wouldn't solve an existential problem. That's a great point, right? So it would solve the problem of people falling into despair of, you know, would solve the problem, not maybe solve the problem, but address the problem of people not having enough money to to live on. They, right. They, it would solve the problem, it would address the problem of people falling into poverty, but maybe right. not despair. Right, right, right. Because there is something about, there is, there is, in, in any writing about work, even from their, you know, Studs Terkel's book Working from 1974, uh, where he, you know, he went around and interviewed people doing a whole variety of jobs, um, you know, and he says, you know, work can be a source of not only daily bread, but daily meaning. And I think that that's a big part. So universal basic income can give us the daily bread. Um, it can provide a floor so that people don't fall beneath the floor, which I think is just, um, but it doesn't solve necessarily that that. That, that existential problem. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people 
with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So if I'm a young person or anybody listening to this, it sounds to me like your advice would be you should work on your right brain capacities. Yeah, uh, well, the, the left brain stuff is necessary but not sufficient. So if you, if you don't have like the left brain SAT spreadsheet abilities, if you don't have that, you're in a world of hurt. It's over for you. But when I was, when I was growing up, if you had those left brain SAT spreadsheet abilities, you were going to be fine. Today, they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. And it's really these right brain abilities that are becoming the first among equals. This is why people have to get better at things like design, at storytelling, at um, uh, invention, at synthetic thinking, at understanding what makes people tick, um, you know, empathy, I think. And so I, in that book, I try to lay out what are some of this, the abilities that are going to be necessary. And one of them was empathy. It's very hard for machines to empathize in a way that human beings can't. And empathy ends up being not only inherently good, it ends up being extraordinarily important in sales. It ends up being extraordinarily important in medicine, in journalism in anything where you're dealing with another human being. In your view, how does one develop empathy? Um, I think there are a couple of things. One, I mean, there's, there's some evidence that some of it is innate. So you have women in general test higher on, on empathy than, than men do. Um, I think what, what like, like a lot of these kinds of abilities, first, you have to understand, you have to be aware of it in the first place. Hey, everyone, there is this thing called empathy. It's basically understand, you know, or perspective taking. There, there is this thing called that, and actually, human beings are often not very good at it. So, what can you do to see things from someone else's point of view? What can you do to stop and say, "Hmm, I wonder how this person is feeling about it," getting out of your own head into someone else's head? So, I think that there's awareness, and then there's some, you know, smaller things that people can do to um, to to get better at that. Do you think of your books as journalistic books, explainers, or is there an, a, an aspect of self improvement? It's I, I I don't buy the distinction among all those. Um, so that so to me the way I look at it is, um, and 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 this all comes from my experience as a reader, right? So I'll read a book about ideas, and I, oh, wow, this is so interesting. Great, I'm seeing the world differently, and then I'll say, well, what should I do about mm-hmm. it? And the book will end. They won't. They won't stoop to tell me what I should do about it. Then, on the other hand, you have books that tell you what to do, purely self help and self improvement. And, and you look at it like, well, how do you know? And to me, what you want to do is you want to marry the two. You want to have books that are that are well researched, built on evidence, built on science, 
rigorous journalism um, that convey big ideas, but you also want to give people some things to do. And those two things, in my view at least, reinforce each other. I think that the takeaways, if you want to call them that, the takeaways help people understand the ideas and the ideas help people put in place the takeaways. Yeah, so you want to help them see the world differently and change their own lives exactly. within that world. Exactly. I love that and, but, but those, But to me, those are, those are not – like the idea that, th- that we're thinking about those as – or at least the industry or certain writers are thinking about those as purely separate domains is crazy because that's not how I live my life. It's, that's not – you know, that they're, they're – they're, they're um, they're uh, inextricable. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I completely agree with that. And I've but I've heard the psychology that you the, the rationale that you just articulated, voiced by people I respect and and have affection for. I don't get it, uh, and I agree with you. Yeah. The people who are writing the big idea, but oh, I don't do that. That's yeah. that's that's, yeah, that's low self help. Oh boy, I don't do that. That's that's basically <clears throat> compromising myself. I thought, you know, it's hey, listen, I, it's fine with me if they do that because it's a market opportunity for me. <laughs> <laughs> so let's keep going then. So the next book was that to sell as human? No, that book was uh, called The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, which was a uh, uh, career guide in manga, Japanese comics. So it was a hundred sixty page graphic novel career guide. So because um, I did a fellowship in Japan to study the manga industry, I see, and then I came back and said, hey, I'm going to try to do my own manga. Um, which was actually a totally fun, interesting experience. Cool. Um, and th- after that was that was a, then there was a book called Drive. Drive, which is, okay, which yes. is, uh, one of your among your best known books. Uh, to, the, to the extent that any of them are known, yes, they're known. Um, and so, yeah, so that was a book about the science of motivation, which came from some of the other stuff that I was cur- became curious about working on other kinds. Of right, things. and there's a, 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 a TED talk with 20 million views that I was uh, looking at today. Yeah, there's a TED talk about that that I w- that I actually did while I was working on the book. Um, what would you say? What was the thesis of that book? Uh, basically, it's this: that if you look at 50 years of behavioral science, a lot of what we think motivates people isn't quite right, especially on the job. So we're back to the workplace. We're back to this juncture of of economics and psychology, uh, the workplace and the human condition coexisting. And so the single animating idea is this, that there's a certain kind of reward we use in organizations. Psychologists call it a controlling contingent reward. I like to call it an if-then reward. If you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. The main – we use a lot of rewards. Disney – has a lot of rewards in its compensation plans, but one of the mainstays of any kind of company is if-then rewards. If you do this, then you get that. 50 years of science tells us very clearly that if-then rewards are extremely effective for simple tasks with short time horizons, turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line, stuffing envelopes, anything that is routine. Simple tasks with short time horizons, if-then rewards are very effective. We love rewards. They get our attention. They get our attention in this very focused way. However, the same body of research tells us that if-then rewards are just not effective for more complex, creative kinds of work with longer time horizons. That It's not even a close call in the science. They just don't work very well. Why not? Oh, for the main reason is this. The main reason – and it's this, this is sort of gets this, – this research is, is easy to caricature, so it's important to understand the nuance. Human beings love rewards. They get our attention, but they get our attention in this very narrow way. You know, they, they put blinders on us. That's very good if you know exactly what you need to do, if you're following a set of rules, marching to a finish line that you can see. Having that narrow view is 
actually enhances your performance. But if you're doing something that requires creativity, if the, if the problem you're trying to solve is poorly framed, if you don't know exactly what the question is, you don't want to have that narrow perspective. You want to have a much more expansive perspective. And so if then rewards narrow our perspective, that's good for some things, but for more creative conceptual kinds of work, it's actually hurts your performance. It's not good for in this right brain universe. Where exactly right. And it's also, it's hard to sustain your motivation over a very long period with these kinds of things. It sort of gives you a sugar high, but you have to keep, you know, taking another bite of the Snickers bar and another bite of the Snickers bar and another bite of the Snickers bar. So what does drive that? And that's basically what this book is about, which is what really leads to enduring performance on a lot of these tasks. And I think are the components of good work are autonomy. That is, do you have some sovereignty, some control over what you do, how you do it, when you do it, who you do it with? A sense of mastery. There's some very good research, including from Teresa Mobile at Harvard, about the single biggest day-to-day motivator on the job is making progress. Are you getting better at something? Are you making progress? And the, and the third one, once again, not looking for it but following the evidence takes us back to purpose. That when people have a sense of purpose, they perform at a higher level and they do a little bit better. And purpose can be something big and transcendent. Um, you know, I'm solving the climate crisis or feeding the hungry. But it could also be just something small. Back to the free agent nation stuff, I'm making a contribution. I helped this guy, Dan, get this project out the door. Um, and we're not. It were, had I not shown up to work that day, he would have failed. And I made a contribution to my colleague. It, it's interesting as we walk through these books. I'm, I'm glad we kind of stumbled on talking about them chronologically because you, you can see how the themes start to build on one another. I think it makes sense only retrospectively because I, I really <laughs> yeah, do. No, like it I wasn't. In, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't saying, oh, what's the through line going to be? How can I build on this body of work? And ext- I don't think that way. I, don't, I just basically take an idea and say, hey, because writing a book is a giant pain, as you know. <laughs> all right? It's horrible. All right? And so you have to live with It's really, really hard. And you have to live with the ideas for a very long time. You and I are talking about stuff I worked on 15 years ago. I'm still living with that stuff. All right? <laughs> if I didn't like it, I would be miserable. So, so you got to pick. So what I do is I just pick something. What am I interested in? What am I curious about? And, um, and what am I willing to live with for a very long time? And most things don't pass that cut. And so that's the criterion that I use. Those are the criteria that I use in deciding what to work on next. I'm not intentionally saying, mm, how can I extend and deepen my body of work? I get it. I totally yeah. get it. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you a self-helpy kind of question. Um, I would, I'm just putting my um, empathizing with the listener who might be in a dead-end job or a job he or she doesn't like, and and we keep coming back to meaning and purpose, which I think will resonate with everybody. Yeah. Would you have any thoughts or advice about how we could get more of that in our professional lives? Sure. I mean, there's and there's, there's actually some good research on that. There's some uh, Amy Rizuski at Yale has has done a whole line of research on on, the, on what she calls job crafting, uh, which is can you make small changes in your job to make it more meaningful? And one of the examples that she uses is. Um, is hospital janitors. She's done some work on hospital janitors. Okay, that's a fairly routine job, low-paid, routine, not highly respected. And so what she found is that if you encourage hospital janitors to think of themselves as part of the medical team, mm-hmm. you're part of the patient's care. To When you go into a room to even just sweep the floor of a patient, talk to the patient, You know, ask them how their day is going. 
And those kinds of small steps can be actually led to greater satisfaction on the part of those janitors, allowed them to stick around for a lot longer. So look for these tiny pockets of meaning in your day to day. Did you do something to help a colleague? Are you contributing to, to, to something? And I think as, as, as people, um, you know, in any kind of job, if you, you know, let's say you're working at a retail clothing store. All right. Um, you know, are maybe did you help your colleague uh, fold the jeans and make their life a little easier? Or is there somebody who's coming in for a piece of clothing for something really important in their lives? And did you help them pick the right thing and make their life a little bit better? And again, I'm not saying that's going to transform a job where you're getting paid minimum wage and being not treated very well into this glorious experience. However, you can find these little pockets of meaning in, in anything that we do if we're intentional about it. And the other route, I think, would be the grander thing to get back to the theme of your first book about Free Agent Nation, that maybe sometimes actually you do have to jump ship. Totally. Totally. And that's and, and the thing is, jumping ship now, I think, is in, less relatively risky than ever before because there's not a lot of security in a regular job. So if you say, is working for yourself risky? Yeah, absolutely. But compared to what? I mean, holding a job is risky now. And so there might be, you know, I think there are people who might be willing to jump. The other thing about it is that the way the world has changed, it used to be that if you left a regular, if you left corporate America to go to free agent nation, you had to, you know, you know, turn back and denounce corporate America. It's like, you know, leaving Cuba and going to Florida. You know, you turn <laughs> back and you denounce Castro and you never return. Um, but now it's more like. You know, the, the better analogy is like the U.S. and Canada in, in some ways. It's like suppose you had dual passports in U.S. and Canada. Like, OK, you, so you've got people right now. This didn't happen back in 2001. I'm going to work for myself. For, I'm going to work for a company for five or six years. Now I'm going to work for myself for five or six years. Now I'm going to go back to a company for five or six years. And that's pretty normal. People are moving smoothly across those kinds of boundaries. Next book. To Sell is Human. And that's about uh, – the thesis of that book is that we're spending huge amounts of time on the job and in other realms of our life persuading, influencing, convincing, cajoling, and, but that we're doing it in a remade landscape. Most of what we knew about persuasion and influence came from a world of information asymmetry where the seller always had more information than the buyer. Uh, and that's why the seller could rip you off. Right. So um, but now we have we've gone from a world of information asymmetry to a world of information parity in all forms of persuasion you see it in journalism as well you have listeners who and, and viewers who can talk back you have people who can fact check you if you make an error god forbid on 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 the air we've gone from this world of information asymmetry to information parity uh, i think that's a big deal um and what it does is it changes um the nature of what's effective in persuasion. The good news is that once again, there's a rich body of behavioral science giving us clues on how to do that better. How do we do it better? Um, the and by the way, just as a just as a precursor question, just based on the title alone, which is a great title. A lot of us, I don't think of myself as being in a sales job, but exactly. you're saying that we all are. We all are, whether we like it or not. And and I did a survey that I thought was fairly interesting where we actually tried to figure out what it is, what do people do all day? Like, what do they actually do? And I've always thought there's a, there's a gap between job descriptions and the truth of what people actually do. And if you look at what people actually do, they're spending huge amounts of their time, 40, 50 percent of their time in this thing that's kind of sort of like selling. All right. So you're not necessarily selling a Winnebago or 
um, pharmaceuticals. But you're at a meeting and you're trying to convince your colleagues to do something different. You're a boss and you're trying to get your employees to do something different or do something in a different way. You're an employee and you're trying to get your boss to stop doing something stupid. You are trying to convince someone to come and work on your team rather than another team. You're trying to get your kid to take out the garbage. Whatever it is, we're spending a huge portion of our time in this thing that, like it or not, is kind of sort of like selling. And I mean, to some extent, that's what I'm doing now. I'm basically selling your listeners on the idea that what I'm saying is more right than wrong and that it's worth paying attention to. Um, and so so we're spending a huge amount of our time doing this. We're doing it on a remade landscape. And so how do you do it better? And so there's some really interesting science out there on how to do it more effectively. What does it say? Oh, all kinds of good stuff. So what you can do, and this is where I completely lucked out, if you look at the guiding principles – um, the guiding principles are ABC. This is pure luck. Here. Always be closing. Exactly. It's a, it's the procur- it's the successor of always be closing. Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Uh, and and that's and that's just uh, by pure uh, fortune, I was able to use that as a jumping off point. So always be closing is this very aggressive, predatory view of selling. You can do that in a world of information asymmetry when the seller has more information than the buyer. When there's there's an even match, the new ABCs are attunement. Can you get out of your own head into someone else's head? A lot of great research on attunement. How do you understand where someone is coming from? How do you find common ground? When you don't have coercive power as a manager, as a seller, how do you understand what the other person's needs and concerns are and find common ground? B, buoyancy. This is one I really like because I spent some time on this book shadowing a fellow named Norman Hall. Norman is a one of the last fuller brushmen in America. He's been going door to door in the business district of San Francisco selling brushes for 40 years. That's a hard job. And he said something to me that really stuck with me. He said, you know, Dan, you don't understand, Daniel Pink, he said, you don't understand how difficult my job is. He said, every day, this is his lovely phrase. I wish I had thought of it. Every day I face an ocean of rejection. An ocean of rejection. So when we're persuading, we get re- we get a lot of rejection. Human beings hate rejection. So the question is, if you're persuading all the time, you're going to get rejected all the time. How do you stay afloat in that ocean of rejection? That's what buoyancy is. And then clarity is, uh, how do you go from – it used to be that you had a persuasive edge if you um, had access to information. That's what it meant. Expertise was basically, I can get information that you can't. So I'm a doctor – I got all the doctor information. You can never get it. I'm a lawyer. I got all the lawyer information. You can't get it. I'm a car salesperson. I got all the car information. You can't get it. Now everybody has the information. So the premium has shifted from accessing information to curating information. Can you make sense of information? Separate out the signal from the noise and information. And then the other aspect of it, which I think is a really intriguing topic on its own, is it used to be that you know, salespeople, sellers, persuaders were problem solvers. And now I think they're more likely to be problem finders because problem solving has essentially become a commodity. If you know what your problem, if your customer client knows exactly what its problem is, they can find the solution without you. They don't need you very much. They need you more to, to be able to do, to say what is, you know, Here's where your problem – what you think is your problem is not really your problem. Here's a problem you haven't considered. Here's a problem coming down the, the road. So 
So A is attunement, out of your own head into someone else's head. B, buoyancy, stay afloat in that ocean of rejection. C, clarity, go from accessing information to curating it, from solving existing problems to identifying hidden problems. I promise this is my last question before we get to the new book, When. How do you stay afloat in an ocean of rejection? Because my listeners will probably be surprised to hear this since by many measures I've encountered plenty of success. have a great job, have written books, blah, blah, blah. But definitely there is rejection in my life, and I find it hard to deal with, as every Everybody human does. does. Right. Every human so does. So what, what did you learn from the Fuller Brush Salesman or anybody else about, about achieving buoyancy? Yeah, so there are a number of specific things that we can do. So one of them is, and this is um, some very enduring research from a guy named Martin Seligman at the University yes, of Pennsylvania, yeah. founded positive, positive Psychology. psychology yeah. Right. He... Um, he actually did one of his most important pieces of work was about 30 years ago where he followed around a group of life insurance sales men, almost all men in Pennsylvania. And he's trying to figure out what made some life insurance salesmen successful and others not. And what he found is that it was their explanatory style. It wasn't their training. It was the way they explained failure. And he came up famously now with I think it's reasonably well known now what he called the three P's, personal, pervasive, and permanent. And so one way to do that is is if you encounter a failure is to essentially rebut um, some of the self-talk that you all, that you typically have. When we encounter rejection or failure, we say, it's all my fault, it always happens, and it's going to ruin everything. That We tend to catastrophize that sort of failure. And you can train yourself to better decatastrophize failure by saying, okay, is it, let's say that I, um, let's say that, um, okay, so example, my my first book wasn't as successful as I wanted it to be, as I thought it was going to be, all right? So, oh, it's all my fault. It always happens and it's going to ruin everything, all right? So I could go back in time then and say, okay, was it all your fault, all right? Well, maybe not. It's just sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't. Sometimes the market conditions are right, sometimes they're not. It wasn't all, you know? Uh, Does it always happen? Well, no, because you've done other kind of things that have actually worked, all right? So it's not pervasive. Is it permanent? Is it going to ruin everything? Most things don't ruin everything. And so so that ability to rebut yourself, to decatastrophize using personal, pervasive, and permanent is actually a real – I actually use that all the time. The three Ps actually lead to the big P, which is perspective. Right. I think that's exactly what it is. You're sort of – you're taking on – at some level – I mean, Seligman doesn't say this explicitly. At some level – it would be the kind of things you would say to a stressed out friend or family yeah, member. You're basically just saying to yourself. Which is, I believe, actually a lot of what meditation is doing for you. You're providing yourself with perspective, with allowing to step out of the stream of your own yeah. stor- habitual storytelling yeah. and to see it with some yeah. distance. Yeah. Okay. The, but the other Sorry. thing on that, I'll just give you one thing on that because, again, it's just sort of like we're, you're talking about um, training and tools and simple things that we can do. One of the things that I've discovered as one of the best things to do, and it comes out in, this, in, the, in the psychology research big time, and other people have written about this, this is not original to me, is if you're – and I said this – I literally said this to my daughter via text um, like 36 hours ago, um, which is this. Like if you're at a juncture and you're not sure what to do or how to react, take a step back perspective, to use your word, and say, what would you tell your best friend to do? And when you ask that question, people always know. And say, okay, let's just do that. So my daughter was like, who's a freshman in college, uh, had texted me about some class that she's in, and it's a giant pain, and the professor's a, a pain, and the assignments are ridiculous, and blah, 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 blah. 
And, you know, and I try to be not super direct, super directive with my kids because they don't they won't listen anyway and just sort of be a little bit more, I don't know, Yoda Socratic like. And 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 um, and I said to her, I said, you know, Eliza, here's a way to think about it. What would you tell one of your friends to do? And I think that's actually a very clarifying question yes. because it gives you the perspective that you're talking about. I'm going to justify my um, leaving your new book to the end of the podcast by, by saying the less we say about it, the more likely people are to buy it. Could be. Well, let's, let's test that theory. Although I don't want to say little about it. I want to say yeah. I want to begin to have a robust discussion about it. I'm just trying to make myself feel better. Uh, so the book's called When. W- what's it about? Uh, this book is about the science of timing. And the idea here is that we think that timing is an art, but it's really a science. And all of us in our lives make all kinds of decisions about when to do things. When should I work out? When should I do this kind of work? When should I do that kind of work? When should I start a project? When should I abandon a project? We make those decisions in a very haphazard way. Um, that's what I was doing. That's how I got into it. And I said, there's got to be a better way to make these decisions. I started looking around for guidance, didn't see anything. Then I said, just ask myself, I wonder if there's research. And then I hit a gold mine. Um, and there is a huge amount of research across literally dozens of disciplines about timing. What's the effect of time of day on what we do and how we do it? Uh, how do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? How do groups synchronize in time? How does the way we think about time uh, shape our behavior? And so I spent a couple of years. This was really hard research, actually, because it's in multiple domains and things that are not at my fingertips. For instance, like I'm okay on economics and social psychology. Endocrinology, not exactly my thing. <laughs> Molecular biology, not exactly well, my thing. Why would those matter? Oh, man, they matter hugely because, because a lot of time, a lot of our time-based um, behavior and perspective is biological. So there's a whole field called chronobiology, which is the study of our, our rhythms. The guys who won the Nobel Prize in medicine in 2017 were chronobiologists. So there's this whole bio, biological uh, component to it that is definitely not at my fingertips. What also has happened lately in the broader world of research is that there are uh, a lot of the really interesting insights are coming from analysis of gigantic amounts of data. And so the in, in those kinds of papers, some of the math is – a lot of the math is over my head. So I had to bring in a, a research assistant who's now a PhD student in finance at, um, at Duke who basically to explain the math to me. It's like – so I read something. OK, Shreyas, explain the math to me. OK, explain it again. OK, explain it again. OK, explain it one more time. Are you saying that – no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying, Dan. Um, and so um, and so this was the, – both the volume and the content of the research was – uh, challenging. So let me ask some basic questions. What's the best time of day to work out? It depends on what you're doing, but there's a very clear answer to that. Here you go. It depends on your goals. You're better off uh, exercising in the morning if your goal is to form a habit, if your goal is to lose weight, and if your goal is to get a enduring mood boost. Exercise has a big effect on our mood. And so if you exercise early in the day, you get that mood boost throughout the day. You don't risk sleeping it away. However, Exercising in the late afternoon, early evening is better if you have different set of goals. Number one, it's better for avoiding injury because our body temperature is at its highest and you're literally more warmed up. It's, the reason I do it in the afternoon and early evening is, is that people tend to enjoy it more at that time of day, Part, I think partly because of the warming up. Um, people report it being more enjoyable, less effortful. 
And the third thing is um, there's some really, really interesting evidence that performance might be greater later in the day. There's uh, some really fun stuff on a disproportionate number of world records, particularly in speed right. events, uh, took, were, were made between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. local time, um, in part because, again, we're biological creatures. Our bodies change over the course of a day. And so at that apex of body temperature, there can be a slight edge, especially when it comes to speed. What's the best time to set a meeting? Depends on what the meeting's about. Um, the you can tell I'm trained as a lawyer because I know the answer to every question is it depends. Um, <laughs> the, that's the thing I learned like the first day of law school. I was like, oh, great. I'm going to spend three years. Um, so here we go. So um, let me take a step back. We tend to move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery. That's true of our mood. There's some great research from studying people's tweets. Daniel Kahneman has done some of the famous Nobelist has done some of this research showing that our mood typically goes like this over the course of a day, up, down, up, a peak, a trough, a recovery. And our performance also changes over the course of a day. So there's some really intriguing uh, evidence showing that, for instance, uh, student standardized test scores drop in the afternoon. You have two students who are taking – you have students – this is some great research out of Denmark where they had a – because of the availability of computers, they had half the students assigned – roughly half the students assigned to take standardized tests in the morning, another half assigned to take the standardized test in the afternoon. Students who took the test in the afternoon scored as if they had missed two weeks of school. So, yeah, it's a big deal. Um, you look at healthcare. My God. Uh, anesthesia errors are four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m., Colon endoscopists find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning exams. Um, doctors much more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in afternoon exams. So get that stuff done in the morning. Totally. Like, I would not let anybody I care about go to the hospital or to an important doctor's appointment in the afternoon. What's now. going on in the afternoon? People are worn out. And we, act, we have this cycle where we got a peak, a trough, and a recovery. Our cognitive – the main point in a lot of this research about timing over the course of a day is that – our cognitive abilities don't remain the same throughout the day. Our cognitive abilities change over the course of a day. I mean, it's it's not a close call. So our cognitive abilities change, but they also they also change in a in a predictable way, and they change and they change in ways that are more extreme than we realize. That the differences between the daily high point and the daily low point in performance are vaster than we realize. And so, to your question, Dan. The big thing here is that the best time of day to do something depends on what that something is. So we move through the day in three stages, peak, trough, recovery. Most of us move through it in that order. The 20% of us who are night owls go through it in the reverse order. But let's neglect night owls because that always happens to them anyway. <laughs> peak, trough, recovery. So morning, we tend to be um, – morning tends to be the peak, early to mid-afternoon, the trough, late afternoon and early evening, the recovery. And what the research shows pretty clearly is that we should put certain kinds of work at certain times of the day. Example, during, the mor during our peak, again, for most of us in the morning, for night owls later in the afternoon and early evening and into the evening, the peak is when we should be doing our analytic work, work that requires heads down, focus, attention. And here's the key word that comes out in all the research, vigilance. That's when we're vigilant. We're able to bat away distractions. So do your, you know, write your legal brief or analyze your data or do your strategy then. During the trough, early at, early mid-afternoon, it's not good for very much. 
So we should be doing our administrative work then. That's when we should be answering our routine emails. That's when we should be filling out for all the office space fans out there, our TPS reports and those kinds of things. That, do the administrative work then. Then the recovery, real, I think really interesting. Our mood goes back up, but we're less vigilant. But that's a good combination if you want to do things like brainstorming. You're in a better mood, but you're looser. That's a good time for brainstorming, iterative kinds of work. And so if we can move our analytic work to the peak, our administrative work to the trough, and our insight work to the recovery, we're going to do better. There's research out there showing that that time of day, just time of day, explains about 20% of the variance in how we perform on these workplace tasks. So that doesn't mean timing's everything, but it means it's a big thing. Yeah. And the problem is, is that we're completely unintentional about how we do things. So, you know, you look at, so, so once I, I, I started steering my schedule in this direction, once I realized this research, so I probably wrote 90% of the words in this book when before noon, because my peak is in the morning. So what I did is I cleared the decks, no email, no phones, just focused heads down in that, in that peak period. In the past, what I would do is I would come into my peak period. Oh, I'm going to check some emails. That's going to turn out to be 97 emails. Then it's like, you know, six ESPN highlight reels later, it's lunchtime. And and I didn't get anything done. And then I say, okay, I got to get serious now. And then I start trying to write or do my serious work during the trough. And it's like bicycling into ferocious headwinds. It's a bad idea. What's worse is how incredibly unintentional bosses are about this kind of thing. So that goes back to your original question. When should you schedule the meeting? It depends on what kind of meeting it is. So is it a meeting where you're going over a strategy, you need like keen analytic thinking? Well, then in most cases, you want to do that in the morning. Is it a meeting for brainstorming? In most cases, you want to do that later in the day. And it's incredible how much organizations are completely blind and unintentional about that. So when we schedule meetings at any company, a big company like, like, like this one or a small company, there's only one criterion we use in scheduling meetings, availability. Who's available <laughs> then? That's the only thing we care about. And so what happens is, is that you have these companies where you have – that are doing analytic work with people who have their peak in the morning and the boss is scheduling a 930 meeting about the travel voucher policy, squandering their time. Or I talked to was one executive at a big company, big tech company. Oh, yeah, we did our product – important product review meeting at 2 in, a, 2 in the afternoon. It didn't go that well. Yeah. The fact that everybody was available at 2 p.m. doesn't mean you do it at 2 p.m. And so – so you have to think of like scheduling of meetings as a strategic decision. What kind of meeting is it? What do you want to get done? Who is going to be there? And availability should be the last screen, not the only screen. So, so it sounds to me like if people took this seriously, it would change our work culture. Do you think that will happen? I think it could happen slowly. Like I, I think that things change slowly. That's my that's my theory of the case in general. Like I do think that you're going to have some people who are going to look at this evidence and, and do things differently. I'm going to. I, I mean, I think I I did myself. Now, is that going to create the, some kind of you know renaissance in company productivity? Or once they apply the principles of when you know, are you going to have? You know, rainbows sprouting out in corporate America and unicorns <laughs> dancing through conference rooms. Probably not. But I do think that you can get a better – I think you can get a better edge. Again, if you just look at this one piece of data, basically time of day explains 20 percent of the variance, which essentially means the difference between, you know, 
why why is why is Fred doing well and Ed not doing well? Well, twenty percent of that is time of day. All right, the other eighty percent could be. One is smarter than the other. One is more conscientious than another. One had more social advantages than the other, right? But 20% of it is time of day. You can actually do something about that. And so, um, so I actually think there's a chance that, that company, I, I think companies would be crazy not to apply some of this. I, I agree. And I, but I would say that the individual could be listening to this podcast, read the book and say, Oh, I can make some changes that actually will give me an edge, whatever my company does. Totally. Totally. Um, I put a pin in this earlier, but just very quickly, I'd love to, before I let you go, what, what did you convince your wife to do? Oh, I uh, convinced her to work for a company called Daniel Pink Inc. Um, <laughs> How's so, that going? Yeah, it's great. Really? We've been do- oh yeah. Yeah. We've been doing, we've been working together for, um, oh my gosh, like 14 years or something like wow. that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Are yeah. you her boss? Uh, you know, I don't like bosses. I don't like being a boss, and I don't like having a boss. So I, I consider it. Um, uh, I'm the president of Daniel Pink Inc. and the largest shareholder um, because we the company has one share and I own it. Um, <laughs> and um, but Jessica is uh, the uh, the treasurer and count and general counsel. So um, so I, I think it works. I think it works great. The other thing that it does is that Daniel Pink Inc. is an incredibly incredibly family-friendly workplace in fact <laughs> it provides um it's one it, it provides jessica um pays all of her health insurance premiums uh not only for her but for her entire family <laughs> so it's a very family-friendly workplace um uh, final thing uh, uh i jokingly refer to this as the plug zone uh, where can people find you on the internet where can they find you on social media where what uh, let's go through the list the names of the books again give, give everything to us okay so uh, the website is uh, www.danpink d-a-n-p-i-n-k.com www.danpink.com um that's where you can basically find everything like okay. that on twitter I'm, I'm at daniel pink um the books are will are available wherever books are sold this has been a treat hey thanks dan it's been a lot of fun Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.